0: About halfway into right before I turned for final, I know that was going to be a little bit low, so I reached for a little bit of power. That is when I discovered I had no power. Gear down, maybe a notch of flaps. At 800 foot is when I decided I was not going to make the runway.
2: Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today, we have a real treat. We have Janessa Duffy and Lynn McNorton, who had a chance meeting in Tampa Bay just a few days ago. Janessa Duffy is the chief pilot and director of flight operations for Icon Aircraft. She's a CFI, seaplane rated, and she also has a commercial rating. Lynn McNorton is a longtime general aviation pilot operating out of Pensacola, Florida. He's flown GA for business and pleasure and owned a couple of Moonies. His latest Mooney is an M-20M, the aircraft he was flying, and the story he's going to share with us today. Janessa and Lynn, welcome to the There I Was podcast.
0: Good morning, Richard.
2: And you guys really haven't spoken to each other since uh, when you met each other on Tampa Bay. So this is kind of fun for us to pull you guys together.
0: Uh, Yes, that's correct. We have not uh, spoken or met since that day, and that takes us back to uh, November the 15th, and about 10 o'clock in the morning, give it takes take a little bit. Mm-hmm.
2: So, Janessa, why don't we start with you, if we could, uh, just a little bit about your background. I'm You and I met a few years ago flying the Icon A-5 down there in Tampa Bay. Share with us a little bit about your story and how you got to GA and bring us up to your experience.
1: Sure, Yeah. So I have been working for ICON for about four and a half years. Um, I started flying, I, I, you know, I don't have anybody um, in in my family that's in aviation, it was kind of just a, a, on a whim. I was in the Navy for a little bit when I got out. I was, um, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do as an adult and I took a random discovery flight one day and I thought this would be really cool um, to do. So I I honestly, I switched my career, I, uh, I moved back home to Miami and I started flight training. And And then from there, you know, I did the the typical path. I went up and got my CFI, started instructing um, at a flight school um, I graduated from Polk State with an aerospace degree uh, program, professional pilot technology. And, And then I actually went a little bit different around. I actually ended up working at an aircraft maintenance shop. And then I did uh, some commercial flying. I ended up just randomly one day getting my seaplane rating because I was actually working at a maintenance shop over at um, Winter Haven, Florida, which is obviously right next to Jack Brown. So it was like the perfect spot to get a seaplane rating. And then probably a year later, um, actually, uh, funny stories, I did like a, a day in the life of a young CFI kind of thing for the flying magazine. And the current director here at ICON for the IFC was shown my video and because I was doing some seaplane flying, he actually had reached out to me and asked if I was interested in um, interviewing for a position at ICON. And so I met him for coffee and then I came and, and flew the A5 and, you know, just pretty much like anybody that flies the plane, like instantly falls in love. So yeah, that's true.
2: <laughs> that's very yeah. true. Yeah.
1: yeah. So yeah. I was like, yes, yes, I do want to fly this for a living. And then I started working for them and I started off as an instructor pilot and then I uh, went to chief instructor pilot and then manager of operations. And now I'm the, the chief pilot and, and director of flat operations. And then about a year and a half ago, I ended up going back and I got my uh, private helicopter add on. And hopefully um, sometime soon I'll go back and get my commercial helicopter.
2: Oh, fantastic. And your story about joining the Navy is pretty interesting to me, right? It had something to do with a tribute to your father, right? Do you mind sharing that with us?
1: Uh, yeah. So, I mean, my my dad was was in the Navy um, well before I was born, but it kind of resonated with him and he always kind of shared that passion and, and his enjoyment of, of the Navy. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away when I was 17. So um, pretty much right after um, I was in college for a little bit and then I decided to kind of follow in his footsteps and then uh, I get that, that Navy experience and I'm really glad I did.
2: Yeah, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your service to the Navy, and we're glad that you worked your way over to the general aviation industry. We're just delighted you're here. You're so much fun to fly with and doing a great job there at ICON. No, thank you. So, Lynn, would you mind share with us a little bit about your background?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I got into general aviation in the early part of the years. It was actually it takes me back to 1974 kind of like Janessa there. I did not have anybody in the aviation world that I do. And, uh, so I just got curious about flying, but the big curiosity was how they got around up there without any road signs. And, uh, so long, long story short, that got me started, I guess somewhere around the age of 19 or 20 or something like that. So anyhow, you I've, I've, uh, got my pilot's license at a little grass strip. Oh, 1975, I would say since then, of course I've, uh, got hooked and uh, been in aviation ever since. I've owned the airplane probably uh, at least 45 years, maybe even a little bit longer, you know, but uh, I had a business in uh, Pensacola, which I was uh, very fortunate to be able to stay in it and survive And I had an air conditioning business for like 41 years, so I got to fly my plane for business as well as, uh, of course, for pleasure. And uh, so that got me into, you know, working out of town. So at the... uh, Aviation parts slash owning your own aircraft really come into a good scenario for me. I looked at it as uh, I'm actually enjoying something and getting paid for it at the same time. So that was a <laughs> <the> lovely part.
2: <laughs> and you bought a Mooney and you'd owned this Mooney for how long?
0: But I've had uh, this one ever since 2005. and Of course, your model of it is a 2000, but it's the M20M which is, of course, turbocharged, uh, goes to 25,000 feet. I bought it out in, uh, let's see, out Midwest. Uh, It had about 200 hours on it. It was almost new, and performance is very, very good. And uh, this is the second one of these I've had in my flying career. But overall, I started out with the Grumman's. I had a couple of those. And then my first Mooney was a 1974, I believe. F model, and then, of course, come on into the K model. I had one of those. I see a 231. Uh, next model, of course, was the TLS, which is kind of the real brother sister to the M20M, you know, of course, that I have now. But they're again like the Moonies. Uh, I'm about a 2,500 hour pilot. Of course, I, I do not hold anything but a private and, of course, an instrument. But uh, that's how it worked fine for me all these years, you know.
2: And you bought the Mooney primarily for your business travel, but you had recently, you live in uh, Pensacola, Florida, and your daughter, I believe, lives in Tampa, and you have grandchildren there, right? And you were transiting back and forth on this day to see your grandchildren.
0: Yeah, that's correct. She's been there in Tampa close to nine, ten years, and of course, uh, as you know, the uh, wife and myself uh grandchildren is right next to children so <laughs> we we had to go there quite a bit so long story short the, the uh mooney worked out great for that from pensacola to uh down to tampa slash peter O night about an hour and a half ride <laughs> so but uh, yeah that's really come in handy So basically by uh, two weeks prior to the 15th we flew from pensacola to tampa of course i had a uh, uh, open hangar there at uh, Peter O'Knight, so I uh, got to be able to put it inside there. So on this day, on the 15th, uh, I had got out to the airport pretty early that morning, uh, blew out somewhere around about 8.30 local time, and went over to Lakeland, uh, which is only just a, you know about a 15-minute ride, to pick up a friend of mine. And, of course, he was one of the guys that was on board with me. Long story short, no problems, all the gauges uh, all in in the green, short flight, uh, landed Lakeland, uh, stopped, went inside, picked up my pasture, he and I loaded up pretty quick, and uh, we departed uh, Lakeland, I guess somewhere about the, uh, I don't know, maybe 930 range, give or take a little bit. And when we climbed out, we departed, headed to the north. Uh, of course, that would take us up to Gainesville. So uh, I was on departure, you know, once I left Lakeland, got on departure for Tampa.
2: Were you flying uh, IFR or were you flying VFR?
0: No, no, good, good question. No, I was all VFR, okay. clear day, but there again you know, on departure. After I got the gear up and got everything I all settled down and my throttle and I all set, I noticed that my EGT slash turbo inlet temperature, you know, was extremely high for that power setting and that uh, low altitude. And just to put note, I had not even started to lean it out, you know, but it was running, uh, you know, over into the 1600 plus range, you know, at that point, you know. And of course, at that time, I was uh, I was at about... 4,000 feet, which uh, departure had cleared me to 4,000.
2: So, Lynn I'm curious if you go from Lakeland to Peter O'Knight, you know, that's a relatively short trip, right? That's only about, what, maybe uh, 25 miles or so. Were you just doing sightseeing or were, I mean, one of the issues you have with Mooney is a fast airplane. So maybe you were sort of circling around North just to give yourself some time to sort of Get the airplane cleaned up and get ready for your arrival? Or what was the occasion for going up to Gainesville?
0: Well, he and I had a friend up in Gainesville that we had promised we were going to go see for quite some time. So that day just worked out just right. <laughs> uh, okay. But to pick it back up, of course, when I got to the 4,500 feet, I already knew I had something going on, you know, that was unusual. So the uh, EGT was what concerned me the most because in a turbocharged airplane, you know, you, uh, you run it too hot, you're going to burn a piston and other things mm-hmm. there. So I'm always very cautious.
2: Yeah, Len, you're right to be cautious. Let's let's talk about turbocharged engines for just a little bit. The way a turbocharger works is it takes the engine exhaust. It uses that exhaust to power a little turbine. That turbine will compress air. That compressed air is then sent through a cooler and routed back to the engine. That engine now receives cooler, dense air, and that allows more fuel to be burned, and that allows for more horsepower. So they're especially helpful at higher altitudes where you can get more power through that denser air coming through your intake. And so pilots flying turbocharged engines pay particular attention to the turbine inlet temperature, the TIT, because that turbine constantly has exhaust gases going through it and it gets pretty hot. So that's your best indication of the operating temperature of the engine And it helps to keep from cooking that turbocharger. But, Len, this is old hat for you. You've been flying turbocharged engines for a while now.
0: Uh, This is my third turbocharged airplane, so I'm, of course, very familiar with that part of it. But I also noticed some some moisture on the windshield. Of course, as you know, it's not the water cool, so it couldn't be water. There, again, a good clear day. So I had two situations going on. I said, man, I've got... uh, something leaking uh, at first I thought it was fuel because it was evaporating pretty quick, but it was still showing the residue on the windshield. So probably 10 minutes into the flight, give or take a little bit, I made a decision, I've uh, got a problem. I need to go back to uh, somewhere that I knew where there was a facility that had some repairs, service people there. So mm-hmm. I, I elected to uh, to go back to Peter O'Knighton, you know, my basically home based in Tampa. So of course, uh, announced to the controller, you know, I wanted to change my, my destination, go back to Peter O'Neill. I made him aware that I had some unusual temperatures on the engine going on. So of course he uh, just, uh, right off the bat, yeah, cleared to Peter O'Neill. Uh, announced to him, I was going to stay up at least 4,000 feet till I got very close to the airport, you know, and then make my descent.
2: So if I can just interject here, Lynn. so you're talking to a controller because obviously you're on flight following. So you're flying VFR, but you're using the controllers to follow along with you, right?
0: Well, that is correct. Of course, you know, that's uh, class B airspace. So... We always basically, but yes, we we was on flight following. Okay, he was with me, but that's uh, kind of usual procedure for me when uh, I, I feel very comfortable having somebody <laughs> that uh, that you can talk to, if, especially if you need them. In this case, I did, you know.
2: Yeah, especially under a situation like this, it's nice to have somebody on that other end of the radio that can help you and provide assistance if you need it. And so I'm following along in flight with you, and as you turn south, you're in the Class Bravo, of course, and you're up at 45, mm-hmm. so now you, now you have to talk to approach. You're talking with them. They know of your situation, and then you make the determination that uh, you're going into busy airspace, but it's an uncontrolled airport there. That yes, yes that's correct. So were you coming down sort of for a right downwind for runway 36, the shorter runway at 2,600 feet, or were you circling or were or, or you moving around trying to go to runway? I think it's, what, zero 4
0: I'm going to that long runway. <laughs> I'm going to runway 5. Okay. And uh, so, yes, had it in sight. You know, everything was good there. Traffic looks like at that point was pretty much clear, nothing on runway 5, you know. Turned my base leg. Maybe I'd already started my descent. Uh, I was down to maybe at that point, 3,000 feet, give or take a little bit. Uh, Still had power. No issue there with the power at all. Just turned base, everything okay. I dropped the gear. I slowed it down, dropped the gear down. Don't think I put a notch of flaps in, but uh, that's kind of... First thing for me is the gear and then the side on the flaps, uh, you know, on into the landing. Of course, at that point, I, uh, about halfway into right before I turned for final, I know I was going to be a little bit low. Gear was down, so I reached for a little bit of power. That is when I discovered I had no power. Mm. engine still windmilling, no, no situation there. Everything was normal up to that point. Uh, got me down to probably at that point, I was around about a thousand feet, still hadn't turned final. That's when I decided the engine was dead, you know, so Mm. automatically all three knobs, mixture, propeller, everything went to the firewall. I remember that Pacifica there and looking down at it and seeing, seeing that was the situation. So I was convinced saying you got an engine out gear down, maybe a notch of flaps. At 800 foot is when I decided I was not going to make the runway. I remember particularly looking at the altimeter, and it was 800 feet. That's when I went ahead and turned north, uh, basically took me right into the wind, just going through my water landing procedures that I've done a thousand times in my mind.
2: Lynn, about how far were you from the airport at this point? You said you were on a right base, um, and you, then you turned directly to the airport.
0: At that point, we was probably, I'm going to just say, a mile and a half off the end of the runway. Okay. But when we actually got into the water and got stopped, I was maybe a quarter of a mile off the shore then, or maybe to the end of the runway, but basically from shore, we was probably a quarter of a mile when we actually you know, stopped. Just to take you back into that scenario, 800 feet, decided it and the engine was out, turned it north into the wind, reached and picked my gear back up mm-hmm. Of course it was already getting pretty slow at that point there going through that procedure I talked about which I've done in my mind a thousand times on a water landing, nose up, slowed down, and just make sure you don't stall it speeds up. Last time I looked at altitude it was 800 feet but seemed like just a moment after that I was I had hit the, I hit the water everything was good we had one bounce. And when the nose come back down, I remember the water coming up over the hood, but not never even hitting the windshield. And at that point, we were stopped in, in the water. So
2: Was the water choppy at this point? To, you know, through your water landing, you were faced into the wind, so that's good. What was, what was the conditions of the surf?
0: Water was smooth, but there was a little chop to it. Okay. At that point, we stopped. Uh, we in the water. Uh, Everything's fine. I don't even remember the seatbelt tightening up, you know, on my shoulder strap.
2: So let's leave it here for a second, Lynn, and let me go back now and catch up to Janessa. So, Janessa, you were flying an Icon A5. Describe that airplane for our listeners, if you would, for people that may not know what it is.
1: Sure. Yeah. So the Icon A-5 is a a light sport, two-seater amphibious airplane, all carbon fiber. Uh, Unique is that um, the A-5 is actually one of the first FAA certified spin resistant aircraft. Uh, We have a parachute on board and we fly by AOA versus airspeed. So it's a pretty unique amphibious airplane.
2: And a lot of fun, i got to say. I had the opportunity to go down there and fly it with you guys a couple years ago. And so much fun to fly. So, Janessa, help us with where were you doing all of this? How did your day start?
1: My day started off as a normal Monday. Um, I got to... you know, our flight center, probably like 8, 8.30 that morning. And we had a couple students in, we were training a couple um, instructors for our instructor network. Um, and so both of, we have a flight training network manager and our chief instructor pilot were busy with them. Um, and initially this return to service flight for the aircraft that I was flying that day, it was actually supposed to happen on Friday. But funny story is when they pulled the, the plane out of the hangar, they rolled over a nail um, and blew the tire. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, and it was like end of day Friday. So they were like, oh crap, all right. Well, we'll just, uh, we'll wait till Monday morning to do the return of service flight. Um, so, which put it on, on me to do it because the other instructors were busy. So, um, you know, Monday came up, I just checked in with everybody, um, start the day. And then I went down to the maintenance hangar. The maintenance guys had already put a new tire on it um, and pulled it out. So I took off and w- I think I did like a couple laps in the pattern to check our gear. And then I departed Southeast, um, our, typical practice area or training and um, water operations areas. Honestly, it's like three or four nautical miles southeast of Peter O'Knight. So, I mean, we take off, we stay at 500 feet and we go southeast. So that's what I did. Yeah, I just went out and um, I was just flying around for a little bit, just came out of a hundred hour. And I think I was at like 500 feet and I was still monitoring Peter O'Knight's frequency. And I heard, um, you know, Lynn over the Over the radio saying that he was inbound. Um, It didn't sound like he was in distress or anything. And I saw him, we have ADS-B in on um, the A5. So I see him and he's a couple hundred feet above me. So I'm like, okay, uh, no biggie. And then I landed on the water. I did a little step taxiing. And then I didn't hear, sometimes we pick up frequency, the um, CTAP frequency when we're on the water, sometimes we don't. Um, And I heard someone say that uh, they didn't think that the Moody you know, made it to the airport. I think there was someone holding short and then there was someone else in the pattern. They were talking back and forth and I interrupted. I said, you the Mooney landed in the water. And like, yeah, we don't think he made it to the the runway. I think he landed short of a final or on base. So I was essentially already on like my takeoff run and I just said, OK, I'm going to go check check it out. So I just kind of went full power. And I, I went to the area where I thought they would be. Um, and I started circling. And I instantly saw that the Mooney submerged in the water. You could still kind of see the outline. And then I saw um, the passenger, his passenger's life vest. It was you know bright yellow, which is very smart. I don't think I would have seen him otherwise. And um, I saw him, I did one other circle just to make sure there was no other, you know, no one else in the water before I landed. So I, I landed. I, I and I kinda landed a little bit further out because I, I just I didn't want to land too close to them. And I shut down, instantly opened up the A five canopy and I said, Hey, you no, know, hey, are you guys okay? Is everything okay? Um, you know, is no anyone injured? And they, he said, No, they were fine. I was like, Okay the current was uh, too strong to to swim over towards the plane. So I started back up and I taxied in front of them um, into the wind. So I knew that the wind would kind of push me back into them. So I taxied, got closer, I shut back down. And then Lynn was able to to grab onto the tail of the aircraft. And then unfortunately, the other gentleman, he was like still underneath the wing, but he couldn't get to like our C-wing area. And I even tried to like, we have a collapsible paddle. I even brought out the paddle and I was trying to get him to uh, to grab it so I could pull him closer to the airplane, but he couldn't grab the paddle. And I think I even tried to throw him a rope, but our rope was uh, tangled and I couldn't get it to him before he uh, before he drifted too far away from the airplane. So I kind of shifted my focus back to Lynn and I just wanted to get a life vest on him just in case, you know, if he got too tired or, I, you know, I wasn't able to, at that point I wasn't 100% sure if I was gonna get him in the aircraft or or like really what the plan was. I just knew I wanted to get a life vest on him. So he came closer to the sea wing, to the front section of the A5. And as he held on to the plane, I kind of put the life vest around him and I adjusted it, I strapped him in and then I pulled the inflate. And then once it was inflated and on him, I had him come over to the other side and that's when I kind of assisted him um, pulling him up on the C-wing and then eventually got him into uh, the A-5. And I think it was when he was on the C-wing, when when we were pulling him on the uh, C-wing on the other side that the passenger side of the A-5 was when Tampa PD Marine unit showed up. And uh, the helicopter was already flying above us and I think I try to hit him on the comms to see if there was, I mean, obviously I obviously knew there was a Marine unit coming or somebody coming. But um, when the Marine unit showed up, uh, you know, I kind of pointed into the direction of his passenger. And based on some of the footage I've already seen, I the helicopter pilot above was also telling him, hey, go check out the other guy, because he had drifted pretty far away from the plane by then. So the Marine unit turned around and, and went to go get him. And then I finished uh, pulling Lynn inside the plane.
2: Wow. And all that seems to happen so fast so you know what really sort of strikes me about this is you keep going back to the current and just looking at the water with it being in a bay there pretty close to shore I wouldn't have expected the current to be such a deal there but it sounds like it really was
1: yeah. And you'd be surprised on especially how the island is and even getting inside because it's kind of on the inlet of the marina. And even when you go inside, the, the current as it like whips around Davis Island, kind of do some funny things. And the closer you get to the marina, it does. Uh, it does, too. But I mean, the winds were about 15 there. I think they were gusting 15 knots that day. So, oh, okay. yeah, I mean, we were pretty close to the shore, so it wasn't uh, excessively r- rough water, but it, it was windy that day.
2: Hey, listeners. Do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. So I want to go back to you, if I can, Lynn. So let's go back to your splashdown. Did you make any calls, have any time to make any calls over the radio that, hey, we're not going to make the, you know, mayday? Or were you so focused on the airplane that you splashed down?
0: Uh, yeah, I made the announcement. Of course, I don't know, you know, at that low how much it went out or who heard it, you know, but uh, we was virtually... Right above sea level at that point. So I now said we were going into the water. My memory takes me back to saying I never said May Day, Uh, we have a problem. I just said, uh, you know, of course, my call sign, Mooney 21890, is going in the water, you know.
2: Okay. And so can you walk us through, you didn't have a whole lot of time to prepare for that water landing. You're with your good friend there. Mm -hmm. Walk us through what, preparations if any you could make and then how you got out of the airplane take us through that if you would
0: first thing was was my mind was uh, open the door with the door open so i reached across my passenger open the door it swung open luckily and uh, he unbuttoned his seat belt how my mind was already unbuttoned so we exited right out the door the plane floated that kind of surprised me there a little bit when I got out here, and I was standing on the wing, you know I had a, two life vests on board. Uh, one of them was right behind the passenger seat. I always keep it there, especially for me. When I'm by myself, all I got to do is just reach and get it. I pulled it out. Just luckily, my passenger was a past pilot. He hadn't flown any in probably 10 or 15 years. He did it one time, I have a pilot's license, so that was a plus. Here and I, either one was... Shook up. Uh, I had a couple of guys ask me, "Was you scared?" And I said, "Well, no. I really didn't have time to get scared. <laughs> this all happened so fast." Pulled it out, handed it to him, instructed him. I said, "Hey, you get this thing on. I'm gonna reach back and back in the cabin, you know, and get the number two life vest. You know, that know that was there. Could not. Uh, all this is in seconds time, so I could not find it back there. I reached back in the back seat." Things was, just about everything was floating at that time, you know. So I decided then, I said, well, no, I'm not going any further in the airplane. I'm getting back out on the wing, back of my mind. He's got the life vest. We can both hold on to one another. And he made the comment that uh, he says, we can float all day out here if we need to. So don't worry about it.
2: (laughs) Well, that reinforces the point that I really heard coming from backcountry pilots. And they talk about survival gear is what you have on your body. Anything else is camping gear or some some other kind of gear, but you can really only count on, for survival, Mm -hmm. the equipment that you have on your body in the form of a vest or whatever. And this kind of reinforces that point, doesn't it? You had it right there in the airplane, but it all happened so fast and water coming in so quickly, you really couldn't access it.
0: Well, that's correct. The number two life vest, you know, I could not access that number one, which— I just praised the Lord that he was with me. The uh, vest was where it was supposed to be. Uh, I was uh, alert enough to know that, you know, it was right there. So basically when I reached back, I grabbed it. That situation might have been a little bit different if that one life vest wouldn't have been available like it was, you know. Yeah. And and particularly if Janessa hadn't come on board real quick, <laughs> it could have been a whole lot different uh, as well, you know, especially if we did not have that. But long story short, when the plane was getting low enough, we know we was going to have to get off the wing. He already had his life vest on. He already had it inflated. Basically, we stepped off the wing. I kind of held on to him. Just a very short time, we uh, saw this uh, uh, seaplane circling. Of course, I'm, I know that it was a small one. I had no idea what it was, but I know that it was... Uh, uh, somebody had us in sight, you know.
2: How deep was the water, Lynn? that you guys were in, do you estimate?
0: We we was told it was about 8 or 10 feet deep there at that point, you know. And okay. that's probably pretty close because the last time I looked back at the plane, and, you know, it, you know, the only thing was sticking up was the tail, but of course it was continued to go down too, you know. Mm-hmm. But I was mm-hmm. told it was about 10 foot of water at that point, you know.
2: And how cold
0: was the water? Well... Temperature outside was, uh, I'm pretty sure, a 70 degree day. Probably the water, if I just had to guess, we was probably 60, 60 to 62 four degrees, something like that. But I never felt the water being cold at all.
2: Really? You don't remember that being an issue?
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 not not while I was in the water. Now, now, thank the Lord when Vanessa come along uh, and I got out of the water. Finally, got up. Uh, she got me up into the cockpit. Hey, she shared, uh, since my partner had the, uh, life vest, when she got up close enough to us, I broke away from him, went over to her, her aircraft kind of held on to the side on the pilot side. That's when she grabbed a life jacket between, uh, she and myself and mostly her got the life jacket on me, inflated it. And at that point I swam around to the pasture side of her uh, airplane. And, uh, Basically, then uh, uh, she got me up in the cockpit, and mostly her and not me. But uh, basically, we were sitting there, and she shared just waiting for the uh, marine boat uh, to just float up to us. You know.
2: So I'm curious about that step of it. You you were clinging to a life vest that was supporting you and your passenger fine seems like you were okay Mm -hmm. and then when you let go and swam, sometimes i have a little bit of uh, sea rescue training sometimes that's a problem in that that gap can be bigger than people think and they're more tired than they think so i'm curious when you let go of your passenger and swam over to the icon did that ever get a little stressful was that a little more of a swim than you thought it was going to be or talk us through that
0: well no here's the situation by that time she had virtually floated right up to us. Okay. So basically, my swim, when I exited from a passenger, swimming to her aircraft, we was just almost right there within, I'm going to say within three or four feet, even if that, you know, because she had drifted pretty much right up to us, you know. Yeah. And when I grabbed onto the aircraft, of course, my friend turned me a loose. I turned him a loose. He drifted on out away from us. He said, don't worry about me. I got the life essay. He said, again, I can stay out here all day if I need to, you know.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, Janessa, I want to go back to some pretty remarkable skill, I think, that you demonstrated there. And what first got my attention is you had the presence of mind to circle around first to take just another minute or two or whatever it would take to sort of get situational awareness of the situation in the water? Where's the passengers? Do you see everything in sight? That's really remarkable sort of head work to me. Talk us through that piece.
1: Oh, I mean, yeah, I I just knew that once I saw the aircraft, and I mean, I know a Mooney is a a four seater. So I just really wanted to make sure that where I landed uh, for the first time that it wasn't I wasn't going to compromise anybody that could be in the water that could be injured. Um, and, And I was pretty confident after I did my second loop around and I and I the cluster him and his passenger with the life vest that that was that was it in the water and even the first time um, you know I landed I wanted to make sure I was still kind of far away just just to make sure that I wasn't gonna interfere with anybody else in the water and I don't know I, I, I think seaplane flying in general that's like one of the main things that you always do no matter what you, where you're flying you're always going to survey the area that you're going to land first to just make sure there's nothing in the water no um, you know especially kind of shallow water nothing like intruding that might hit your hole. So I think it's kind of second nature for a seaplane pilot to always survey and see what's in the water before you land, no matter what.
2: And then using some of those good seaplane skills, which you obviously have a lot of flying the Icon as much as you have in other airplanes, to go upwind and then just allow yourself, cut off the engine. And at that point, you're a water vessel, not really an airplane, and just Mm -hmm. allow yourself to drift with the wind and the current into where your passenger was, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Some pretty good skills there. Talk to us about, you mentioned the bright yellow jacket, life jacket, that that really stood out to you. And again, as I look at it, where the event happened, I would think, oh, that, you know, it's pretty close to shore and the water there. And you could know, probably see, but, but not so much. It was a little more difficult to pick out everything. So it kind of reinforces that point.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you you would be, and it was still kind of early in the morning. So even as you're circling, uh, as I was, you know, essentially on my downward side, and I mean, I'm looking that the sun will hit the water in a specific section where you can't really see, you just see glare. I mean, that's one of the, the things that you kind of always have to, be aware of when you're doing seaplane flying it's like the sun position and how it can affect your uh, visuals when you're trying to land so i mean there's when i'm on the upwind i can see them pretty clearly and as soon as i turn down when i lose them for a second um, and it's not until you kind of get past the sun angle that you can actually start seeing the water a little bit more clearly um, so it, if it wasn't honestly it wasn't for that yellow bright yellow vest it, it probably would have been a little bit harder for me to spot them
2: Man, that's, that's good reinforcement for all of us that whether it's seaplane flying or you know, over land that have something that's visible to the pilot that they can see or your rescue people that they can see so easily. Did you just happen to have another life preserver in the airplane? Is that part of your standard kit? How did that happen?
1: Yeah, that's a part of uh, our standard kit. We have two uh, pull-to-inflate Mustang uh, life preservers on on board. Anytime we touch the water, they're required.
2: Ah, OK, good. So Lynn, I wanted to go back to your landing. A couple of things really seem to be important here. And the first is that as soon as you knew that your engine was dead and you'd done everything that you could to try to get it back with firewalling everything and your boost pumps and whatever switches you were activating, then you immediately pulled the gear up. And you had to do that pretty quickly because you were at 800 feet and sinking rapidly. And if you hadn't have done that, for sure the Mooney would have flipped, and this scenario could be totally different.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's correct. It goes back to I can't claim a lot of the responsibility of being a great pilot. The only thing is you're training you know, somewhere along the line that you think in these in your mind are actually doing them. But there again, for me in my mind, I've made the landing a thousand times, just my books I've read and, you know, aircraft that's went in the water and such like that. And you're correct on uh, a fixed gear airplane. They much more likely to flip same way with a retractable gear. You got the gear down. You got just a bunch of things hanging out. Basically it just becomes a pivot point. So I always uh, had in the back of my mind if I ever had to go in the water, I want to make sure that gear's up, keep your nose up, and make sure you don't stall it and just slide right into a, right into the water You're like you would the runway, you know. So all those things kicked in. So just thank the Lord that they did, and I was able to stay calm as well as my passenger. He and I never got anything but a, a mild conversation. I told him, "He said, hey, we fixed fixing to go in the water. He said he did throw his hand up on the dash to brace for myself. I did nothing more than hold the wheel and keep it pulled back. But like you, I said, you know, I only had seconds to make all this stuff come together. And uh, thankful it all come out like it was, and very, very thankful that Janessa come along when she did. It, you know.
2: <laughs> so you were you were you estimated about a quarter mile from the shore or so. Let's play this out, uh, Lynn. If you had not have had life preservers on board and Janessa had not have come along, do you think you would have been able to swim to the shore?
0: Well, that answer's no, because at that time, you know, we could see the uh, there's a marina right there next to the airport, and it was just right straight ahead of us, you know. So when we got in the water, we was getting further and further away from the shore, so— Yes. Uh, number one, if uh, Janessa hadn't come along. Number two, if we hadn't had that one life preserver, uh, we could only imagine what could have happened. Now, both of us, me and the pastor, both grew up around the water, grew up around the gulf, knowed about, you know, don't exert your energy. You know, you're not going to make sure, you know, you just float and kind of just do the best you can to stay up and don't uh, don't burn up the energy. Both of us were certainly cognizant of that.
2: And how long were you in the water before Janessa
0: arrived. Well, let me add something to the footnote. After we got up, they got us on shore. We was in the marina after we met with some officials. They got us up in the marina. They had it on video, and uh, we looked at it. From the time we hit the water to the time Vanessa landed in the water, it was virtually eight minutes, Mm. according to her video, you know. Mm. Now, till the boat come, and actually showed up. It was like twenty minutes. So yeah. so basically we was in the water probably fifteen minutes, you know. Mm-hmm. We were just very blessed that the help was there, the life this was there, all these things come together.
2: Yeah, just gonna say eight minutes is mm-hmm. you know, if you hadn't had a life preserver it'd be a long time and then to be in that water for twenty I'm sure the adrenaline was pumping, but that's that's pretty chilly water to stay in for a length of period. So mm-hmm. it, you just had some things go your way. Um, and thankfully, Janessa happened to be in the area, happened to be list paying attention and you mm-hmm. know showed some incredible skill to taxi up there and pick you up. I wanted to uh, ask you also, it wasn't really required for you to have life preservers on board because— You were just taking off and you would have technically been within gliding distance of the flight you had planned, but thank goodness you did. And this is for those who listen a lot to our podcast. So many times we hear that people who've gone above and beyond for the kind of safety equipment they have in their airplane or training that they take, that it came to play to be really helpful to them in this stressful situation, which it did for you as well.
0: Yes, that's correct. In my early years, uh, of course, flying around Pensacola, basically, we got to Gulf, we got to Bay. My mindset was, in my earlier years, I wasn't over the water. I really didn't need a float device, et cetera, et cetera, you know, big mistake. And when we get a chance to share some uh, this story with a group of pilots or whoever it might be, I will— uh, certainly uh, suggest that any and all of us have that float device, and not only that, being able to get to it. Uh, mm-hmm.
2: So let's move to the lessons learned piece that we can take away, and Janessa, I'd like to start with you as you just think through this uh, scenario. What kind of lessons learned can we take away from that, both from your standpoint and just what you saw entirely?
1: I mean, I think Lynn reacted well to the situation he was in. I mean, he he acknowledged the fact that he was starting to um, see some issues uh, with his with his temps, and he immediately um, headed back towards the the airport. I'm sure you're going to, you know, probably get a a lot of backseat drivers that are going to make some comments about him overflying an airport. Or, you know, uh, that there could have been other airports he could have landed at. But, um, you know, for the situation that he was in, I think he did a, a really incredible job and the situation could have been a lot worse. I mean, he landed in the water in an aircraft that's not supposed to land in the water and him and his passenger were totally safe. So uh, kudos to him. Um from my perspective, I would say, like, obviously, that's not something that I've ever done before. And I'm glad it it turned out well. I think that if it was, you know, five or 10 minutes later, and I would have already seen the, you know, the police helicopter there, I don't know if I would have, I didn't want to get in the way of obviously of, of first responders that that's legitimately their job. So I think if I, I think that with how quick everything happened, I did what I did, because I knew there was no one else there yet. I think that that, you know, if someone else was in the situation in another seaplane, or if I was out flying around somewhere else, and I had already seen first responders, I don't think that's something that I would, you know, go interrupt and try to interject to help. But um, I think the situation was just um, very unique, and everyone was in the right place at the right time, and I was happy to help. The only thing that I would say, as far as seaplane, that, that, and I'm I'm big on it with our accessories in our airplane is that uh, for the the second time I tried to throw a rope to somebody was our rope was actually tied up and coiled up in in the pocket where it sits. And if, if the rope was actually put in there, probably a little bit neater and wasn't tangled up, I probably could have thrown the rope to him a little bit faster and pulled the second passenger in. So uh, from an accessory standpoint, I always tell people uh, seaplane-wise, if you have something in there, it's probably, and when you do need to use it, you need to use it pretty quickly. Um, so when you have ropes in a seaplane um, for securing on the beach or whatever the case may be, like make sure your gear and your equipment is in place and ready to use whenever you whenever you need it, because again, you never know when you're going to
2: need it. And to your point, you're going to need it very quickly. Yeah. To be able to locate it quickly and then use it quickly. It's funny as you were telling that about the line being kind of tangled and you couldn't get it out. Having some seaplane experience myself, I'm, I was sitting here shaking my head, going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." It you know, drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Um, Len, let me ask you from uh, your whole experience here. What are some of the takeaways and lessons learned for our audience?
0: Well, one big thing is we think about these things and think about all the time we're gonna have. I cruise most of my time ten plus thousand feet, you know, and uh, I can glide about uh, two miles per thousand, according to all the statistics. And uh, I said, well, shoot, if I uh, have a problem, I'm on. Uh, very possibly be up high, I'll have a little time to get all this stuff together. You know, that that's a bad thought. That's not a good good way to think. In my case, as we uh, have already discussed and uh, discovered, you know, I was down to seconds and not minutes. You know, one thing I didn't do that uh, on my back of my mind checklist water landings is I didn't open the door right before impact. So that's one of the things I think about the only thing I think I missed was that one thing there. But in my case, when we hit the water, I reached for the door and it swung right open.
2: I know that uh, I saw a picture of them towing your Mooney to the shore. It's probably a little too early. Any, any indication yet what the problem was, why your engine quit?
0: Well, my background being mechanical, you know, it was something in the fuel system almost had to be. I had two indications of that. Number one is that fluid on the windshield. I'm convinced it was fuel because it evaporated. If it had been oil, it would have streaked up the windshield. I've seen that happen before. So in my opinion, it was something in the fuel system that went awry and uh, took me to where I was. You know.
2: And, you know, sitting here thinking through it, Lynn, you're coming down out of 4,500 feet. You're heading to the airport there and your throttle's pretty much in idle for most of that way. Is that would that be correct as you're descending? No,
0: in? no. No. Uh, in my trip back, we was just reduced power. You know, just like if you was sightseeing. Okay. But for me, I reduced the power just to get the temperature down. Right. But I still was probably running, you know, fifty percent power, something like that, in my scenario coming back toward the airport.
2: And you had your power reduced as you come Mm -hmm. into the airport and then after you put the gear down you go to power up and that's when you realized you you had no more power than that reduced power setting and that wasn't enough to maintain level flight is that
0: right yeah that is correct
2: well i want to thank you both for coming on and sharing your story it's a really exciting story and so thankful it turned out the way it did and that Janessa was airborne, happened to be airborne at that time in a great airplane to help and have the skills that she had and the presence of mind to help. And glad, Lynn, that you had one life preserver and that you just maintained your cool throughout the whole scenario. And I do have to say um, it really is touching too that you had one life preserver and you gave it to your passenger as the true sort of captain of your your ship there, your airplane, taking care of your passenger first.
0: Well, and that's true, but let me just say this. That was not ever on my mind at the time. As we talked, you know, all this is things that's happening in seconds, you know. Things just kicks in sometimes that, uh, when you get in that emergency situation. And for me, just thankful it all come out uh, in a positive side.
2: It seems like you both sort of demonstrate that concept that we've heard, that in an emergency situation, you don't rise to the occasion you fall back to your training. And mm-hmm. it seems like that's really what both of you did to help salvage what could have been a really uh, bad day into a great outcome.
0: Yeah, yeah that, that's mm-hmm. correct
2: there. Mm-hmm. So anything else? Uh, I just want to thank you both. Janessa, start with you. Anything else that you wanted to say or add? And
1: um, Yeah, actually, I would like to uh, give a shout out. So on my off time when I'm not working at ICON, I actually helped run a nonprofit animal rescue called the right Away's Animal Rescue. Um, we're about two years old, and we just opened up our first facility, and we have hundreds of animals in our care right now. And, um, you know, in the Tampa Bay area, I was looking for volunteers or donations. So um, anybody's interested in uh, giving back or supporting, you can... Can look us
2: up at uh, runawaysanimalrescue.org. Runawaysanimalrescue.org. Fantastic. Thank you, Janessa. And Lynn, how about you? Same question.
0: Just a footnote one of my good friends here in Pensacola, he has been involved with the transporting animals from state to state. So I've been a little bit involved with him there on that. Janessa, maybe you and I can get together at a later date and compare some stories and talk about that. Going back to the uh, suggestions, you know, from a fellow pilot is says just make sure you're aware it can happen. For me, uh, just like I said, I've flown 50 years with uh, no events. Uh, I have one now, but uh, maybe uh, this will help some guys, uh, ladies in the future that uh, they might reach back on this and say, hey, I learned something from it, took something away from it, and uh, maybe put it to use one day.
2: Well, there's a story that could have turned out so differently if not for Janessa Duffy being on scene and having the situational awareness to understand what was going on around her, and then the skills to maneuver her icon in a direction where it could truly be helpful to people in distress. So let's talk about that scenario that Janessa mentioned that people will second guess perhaps the decision to continue on to Peter O'Knight Airport when there were other airports along the route. And many of us have been in that situation where you have an aircraft anomaly, but you're trying to figure out whether or not it's serious enough that you have to land early where there may not be any support available for you, or if the aircraft is sufficient enough to get you to a destination where you can get better help. And that gray area is something that many of us have experienced, and it really comes down to pilot judgment. Being in that situation, taking in the information available to you, how your engine's running, how it's feeling, how it's sounding, and the distance that you have to go versus your altitude above and the weather and the winds and all that factors into the decision that you're making. And in this case, you can see where Lynn is thinking his engine is running fine at a reduced power setting. It was really running fine all along. He just was worried about the high temperature, understandably so. So he reduces power to get it underneath the high temperature and he thinks that that's fine and he can get home under that scenario. It turns out that he can't and he doesn't realize that until about 800 feet after he puts the gear down and powers up. So there may be a lesson learned that comes out of that, that if you're going to be at a reduced power setting for an extended period, occasionally do a power check to see if your power is still there. And in this scenario, we don't know. It may have been if he'd have done some power checks because we don't know exactly when the engine stopped responding to throttle movements. It's one of those gray areas that requires pilot judgment. And in this case, we're just thankful that the scenario ended the way it did. Thanks for listening to this special edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, David O'Leary, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.